Welcome to another inspiring message from Pastor John Cameron, lead pastor of Arise Church in New Zealand. We know this message will empower and inspire you. John chapter 17 is our passage for this morning. Um, have you ever been on a road trip? I reckon being New Zealanders, most people, if not everybody, hearing this message from Whangarei to Dunedin and maybe around the world, you've been on a road trip. For all New Zealanders, this is part of our national identity, right? I mean, if you're a parent, you understand what it's like to take your children on a road trip. But even if you're a teenager in our service today, then even at the age of 18, 19, you're starting to venture out on your New Zealand journey on some form of a road trip. And, you know, road trips are amazing because whenever you go on a road trip, there's some things you have in common. Firstly, road trips start early in the morning. They have to, right? If they don't start early in the morning, somebody is backslidden. That's just the way it goes. You got to get up at some time before dawn, children in pajamas, you know. You got to load up a vehicle. I mean, in my house, this happens the night before. I personally, as the man of the house, refuse to pack the car. And now, 20 years in, young husbands write this down until everything is already in the garage. It will not begin until everything is in the garage. I used to get caught by this in the young years of our marriage, and Jillian's not here today, so I can say whatever I want. Um, but, you know, in the early days, I, I would say, is everything here? And she would say, yes. Then I would start packing the car. And, you know, there are people literally nodding all over the auditorium, like, like empathy breaking out, because she would continue to come up to me as I'm playing Tetris with the boot of the car. Oh, darling, I've just got to, you know, we need to make sure we've got the, and here's the medicine pack, and we better take the board games, you know, and, oh, I forgot the kitchen sink. I mean, honestly, uh, you know, her dad has a policy that you can pack shoes and stuff that are not in suitcases. This will not happen in this generation of my family. I am the man of my house, and we have new rules in our family, and you know, then you get the car loaded. You're already exhausted and a little bit tetchy by the time that has happened, right? Then we get everybody and we load them in the car. That's a moment of bliss because we've got a destination in mind. We're heading on a holiday. Everybody's kind of motivated. There's family waiting for you at the other end or something that you, you know, a ski field, anything. But it's always going to be better at the other end of the rainbow. So we set off down the road. We got, you know, songs playing. Everybody's happy. You know, if you're with a bunch of your friends on a road trip, we're all kind of loving it. We're going on an adventure together. But have you noticed that on a road trip, the longer you're on the road trip, things can change, right? I mean, you started full of optimism, excited about the destination. But as the journey gets on, you start to notice things you've never noticed before in your life. Like you've traveled in this car across town a thousand times, but two hours into the road trip, you're noticing new things about your seat you've never thought of before, right? You're starting to notice the way that the driver even goes around corners is suddenly given new scrutiny. What I've noticed, the biggest thing, and I've been doing this for years, people, for years, for years, is that when you're on a road trip, people become incredibly spatially aware. Have you noticed that? I mean, it starts for kids when they're two years old, but it's the same when you've got adults. I mean, for me, when I'm in the back seat on a road trip, I am hugely spatially aware. I want to know, this is my seat. This is your seat. 
If you want to have three bags in your laptop, then you can have them in your space, right? If you want to have your legs nice and wide, then just don't cross this line. And then there are these people who have no spatial awareness. Have you ever noticed that? They're just never going to be aware, are they? They're just, they're just always going to overlap their environment. And I'm like, you know, four hours into the road trip, I'm like, get your foot away from me, you know? Lost my salvation, no ministry credibility. Everything starts great, but the longer the journey continues, you know, things just start spiraling down. Well, Jesus was alive on this planet for 30 years. He was the son of a carpenter, people thought, and then at the age of 30, his true identity was revealed as he went from carpenter to minister. And I want you to know, no matter how long you've been alive, it's highly probable that your real identity is still in the process of being revealed by God. Sometimes it if it took 30 years for the perfect son of God, who knows how long it's gonna take for you and me before the real us gets put on display by the glory of God. But just like Jesus at the age of 30 had a light shine from heaven upon him and a voice came into his ear, this is my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. God's got a call and a commission and a purpose for why you are here and nobody is an accident and nobody is just the son of a carpenter rejected and put on the side. Every person hearing this message has a plan that God has in mind for you. If you believe it, I, I think you can respond a little bit better than that. I mean, I know it's, it's early on a winter's morning, but I'm talking and saying you've got an identity, right? Well, Jesus stepped into his ministry at the age of 30, and he had a plan. Three years. And in three years, I got to change the world. So in order to do this, to go big and to change the world, Jesus did something powerful. And if you're here this morning, it might just be the key that'll unlock your future. To go big, he went small. To have a big impact around the world, Jesus began to look not for crowds, but for disciples. And many people are hoping that God's gonna unlock their destiny and they've got big dreams and big plans. And God's like, well, go small. Get up at the same time every morning. Read your Bible just every day. Pick one habit and change it. Not, not four, just one. One thing about you that by Christmas you could have improved. If you want to go big, go small. Jesus pulled these disciples out and he found these guys. He, he chose people that you and I would never have expected. If we were alive then, we would have 30, thought he would have gone to those in the doctorate program in the universities. He would have gone to the elite. But instead, he chose manual laborers. He chose people on the, on the sides. He, he chose a tax collector, which was a person reviled and despised by society. I mean, outside of his core group of disciples, he allowed prostitutes. He allowed women who had no husband anymore to be involved in his ministry team, fundraising for him, providing the meals. I mean, he had people involved in his ministry that we would never expect. And I don't know, I just feel like maybe I'm talking to somebody today who doesn't expect to be used by God. Maybe, maybe you've looked past yourself or looked at somebody else, but Jesus is looking straight at you. He doesn't see what everybody else sees. You see what I'm wearing, but God sees my heart, right? And Jesus is looking at the heart of these young guys and he calls them out and they begin to follow him. And, and a trip begins. I mean, a journey begins. And what a journey it is. I mean, for the next three years, these guys get to roll with Jesus. They're going with him everywhere. I mean, they ate with him. 
they all kind of, you know, were, were part of the same, you know, uh, Marai style sleeping quarters, you know. They were all journeying together. They were, they were all part of the same posse, the same group. Jesus would preach a sermon. They got to hear it. He, he'd have conversations afterwards where he kind of elaborated more on his content. They were part of that. You know, they, they, they were there when people were raised from the dead, when, when people got their sight back, their hearing back, their ability to walk back. Demons were driven out of people. And then Jesus said, now it's your turn. And, and he gave them a job. I mean, they were like 14, 16, 18, 22 years old, and they've been given power and authority by Jesus. Hey, listen, mental note, you never can say you believe in somebody until you're willing to give them a job to do. A belief in a person is not a compliment, it's an action. I believe in you, it's a verb. Go for it, do something. I believe you can do more than you could ever think you could do. I mean, they're loving it. They're on this amazing journey. And they're only on this journey team for three years. And as that journey gets closer to coming to a completion, well, you know, the behavior starts to deteriorate just the same as it does on any road trip you've ever been on. I mean, if you read the, the Gospels and you're reading them with eyes wide open, you would kind of get to a point where you're like, these guys, it's like the longer they spent with Jesus, the less saved they seem to be. I mean, they start off and they're like, we'll do whatever you want to do, Jesus. We're here no matter what, you know. And then they go out on their first ministry trip and they come back and they're saying, Jesus, even the demons are subject to your name. This power is amazing. You know, like, wow, you can't touch this. You know, like they, they're really raiding themselves. And then Jesus says, well, let's go have a break. And so they take off across the lake to recover from their time of ministry. They'd heard that John the Baptist was dead, so they're like exhausted and depleted emotionally. And then when they get there, 5,000 people roll out. And so Jesus performs miracles and teaches them for the day. At the end of the day, these disciples are like kids who are bored with the puppy. They're like, let's send them away now. Jesus like, no, no, that's not why we're here. We're here to make a difference before you send them away, you bless them. You don't get to turn your back on this thing. Then they start arguing amongst themselves about who is the greatest. I mean, they're having huge conversations like, you know, are you the greatest? Are you the greatest? You know, I'm the greatest, you know. But they got two disciples, James and John, the mummy's boys, and they get mum to roll up to Jesus and to ask, this is a true question, it's in the Bible. Jesus, when you get to heaven, can I have a throne on your left and a throne on your right? These guys are literally saying, this is my seat. I am the greatest. Get out. I'm going to decide the playlist. You want to listen to United? I want to listen to Coldplay. Stop telling me I'm not saved. You know, like they're just, they're like drawing lines, right? You'd expect it to be like, oh, we're here to serve the world after three years with Jesus. But it's exactly the opposite. And then, then finally, they've left Jericho. And as the, the whole journey reaches a completion, the last city they were in before Jesus' grand entrance into Jerusalem was Jericho. They roll out. They're heading towards Jerusalem. You've heard the public thing that when they got there, people began to Palm Sunday where they grabbed palm branches and cloaks and they shouted Hosanna to the son of David and the children all sang songs, which is where our Palm Sunday inspiration comes from. But here is the private conversation. Jesus rolls up to Peter and John. Now, if you're gonna pick the top two, that's your top two. 
Peter and John, they wrote books in the Bible. And Jesus says to these two cats, he says, I want you to go ahead of this team. When you get to Jerusalem, you're going to see a man carrying a water pot. And I want you to carry him. Follow him, follow him. I want you to follow him. He's going to get to a house. When you get to a house, you're going to roll up, knock on the door, and you're going to say, where is your large room? Because the master is coming and he has need of a space to have a meal. It's the meal is what we call the last supper. All right, you in the story? So in the background, there's this big triumphant entrance and everything's going down. But Peter and John have been delegated by Jesus the role of the hospitality team. He's like, you don't get to be the pulpit dudes who won't carry water. You're gonna serve in this instance. So the big grand entrance takes place, the crowds dissipate, then Jesus rolls up at a house. Okay, so when he gets there, it's a bit awkward because the Last Supper is the most intimate meal Jesus enjoyed while he's on this planet, and he excluded everybody but the 12. Peter and John are the caterers. The other 10 disciples are in the room and Jesus. 13 people, one table, everybody's together. So when they roll up to the room, this ministry team, who only a week ago or two weeks ago had a woman grab a jar of perfume worth a New Zealand currency, about 43, or if you live in Wellington, where people earn more than the rest of the country, $46,000, a very expensive jar of perfume was used to cleanse his feet after his day's journey. But now we're in the upper room at the end of the grand entrance, big crowds, lots of dust on the feet. And there is no one, no servant, no willing follower, just, just a competitive, road trip weary group of 12 disciples and a need for some feet to be washed. Gets a bit awkward. Because everybody's thinking not who's the least, they're thinking, who's the greatest? If I take the low road, then I'm admitting that I'm not the greatest. It goes round the table. Basically, as everyone walks in the door, their feet are dirty. Next guy, next guy, next guy, knowing that they should never cross the threshold with their dirty feet. I bet at that moment, Jesus is doing what every dad, every, every car owner as a teenage road trip does when you get hours into that journey and the behavior is starting to deteriorate and you're like, shut, just stop it. Can't we all just get along? You know what I mean? And whether it's your vehicle when you're taking your friends to the beach, you know, at, at summer, or whether you're a dad trying to be a good dad at that most exhausting, you know, moment of your life, His Jesus with His crew, the destination is just around the corner. The next day, He is literally standing before Pilate. And here He is in this moment, that very night is the Garden of Gethsemane. And in this moment, Jesus gets down, and John 13, 3, I believe, is the most important leadership scripture in the Bible. I require every paid pastor and our staff to know it off by heart. So I'd like three to come up here and tell, no, no, we're not going <laughs> to. John 13, 3, John 13, 3, the Bible says Jesus knew. Johnny, you ready? You ready? Liam? <laughs> Liam's got a newborn child. He can't even think right now. He might, maybe he can. If he can, he's amazing. But, you know, John 13, 3, the Bible says Jesus knew that he came from the Father, that he was returning to the Father, and that the Father had placed all things under his feet. He knew where he came from, he knew where he was going, he knew what God had called him to do. 
So he got up from the table, stripped off his clothes, put a towel around his waist, and he washed his disciples' feet. If you know where you've come from, if you know where you're going, if you know what God has called you to do, then what you do will never define you. Now that will change a life today. It will, it will change a life. If you're guarded about what you'll do, if you don't want to be seen in a servile role, if you're concerned for appearances all the time, then I can guarantee you one thing. You don't know where you came from. You don't know where you're going. You don't know what God called you to do. If you know that, then the task does not define the identity. They finish it all. They have the meal. Judas leaves. He's now filled with literally the spirit of Satan, the Bible says. Jesus, in every other gospel, bails on this moment and goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. But in John 17, John was there every time Jesus had a private moment. He was in every room. He was on the mountain. He was there in the prayer times, there in the garden. And here, in only one gospel, we get a prayer that Jesus prayed that you don't see anywhere else in the gospels. His prayer not for himself, that was the garden. Here, Jesus prays for you and me. And this is what he says after three years on a road trip. Three years of deteriorating behavior. Jesus prays in John 17, verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Tap the person next to you and say, that's talking about you. I pray for them that all of them may be one. Could they all just get along? <laughs> Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. Because man, if they could be one, then the world would believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me that they may be, come on, shout it out. One. Let me hear you, Fungaday. They may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity. To let the world know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Here we have our Jesus on the edge of his departure to heaven. Literally, he finishes the prayer. John 18, 1 says he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, arrested, everything takes place. He's crucified within the next 48 hours. And his prayer on his departure is that you and I would get unity. Jesus said, if we don't get this unity thing happening, then man, it will all have been worthless. Jesus says, I'm about to take off and go to heaven. And you know what's going to happen when I leave? Power is going to be poured out. I have given them your glory. It's about to arrive. Anybody grateful that you're not living in the Old Testament where a high priest had to enter into the presence of God, but now you're in the New Testament. The temple the curtain has been torn in two. We can come boldly before the throne of grace. Jesus welcomes us into the holy presence of God. There is no fear. There is no trembling. You don't need a bell around your foot to wait for you to die when you come before Jesus. Your sin is forgiven. The access has been made clear. You and I are literally given the ability to walk in the very presence and glory of God. Somebody needs to lift their voice and give God some praise for that.
And Jesus is saying, I've given them your glory, but what difference does power make if it doesn't get visited in the place of unity? He said, man, we better get some unity or this whole thing is going to fall over because there is a Holy Spirit to be poured out and there is a world that needs to be impacted. If the Holy Spirit's gonna get poured out, then we need some unity. Psalm 133, that when the people dwell together in unity, there the Lord commands the blessing and it is like oil. Oil is the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit's gonna be poured out, guys, then we need unity. If you wanna see what it's like to have the manifest power and presence of God, visit an environment, then don't just be in the room, but be in the room in unity. All together in one accord. That's Acts 2. Well, in Psalm 133, it says when people dwell together in unity. You get those two things together. Same people, same language. One room, one accord. All together in unity. Well, right there, you've got a visitation possibility. I don't know about you, but I don't believe God wants us to be Christians just so that we get a magical ticket to heaven, but He wants every person in our community to be saved. He wants every sick person to be healed. He wants our generation to be alive with the hope of the gospel. God wants to visit people with His power and His purpose. If you believe it, lift your voice from Whangarei to Dunedin in every corner of the world and shout yes. Come on, we serve a mighty God. The Holy Spirit gets poured out when you have unity. The second thing that happens when you get unity is that the world is impacted. There's nothing attractive about disunity. In fact, when you've been on that road trip, have you ever rolled up to have a meal somewhere on the road trip and your kids are like arguing the whole way to the counter? And then there's some other family and they look like they've been journeying as long as you now, you've got to remember that I'm a pastor, right? And people kind of know me a little bit. And so often I roll up to these places and I'm looking around the restaurant or the cafe and I'm trying to work out who in this McDonald's knows me. You know what I mean? Because then I'm trying to be a really good Christian family. You know what I'm saying? And my kids are like, ah, we're not even saved, let alone a pastor's child, you know? They don't swear, but they do everything else. And then you're rolling up and there's some dad, and you know, and he clearly is six hours into it, but his children are perfect, and mom's loving, and she's like, you know. And I know, I know, they look like Ned Flanders in The Simpsons, you know what I'm talking And in your heart, you're like, I should be happy for these people, but really, you want to know the car and let the tires down. Because nobody should be that nice six hours into this trip. There's no child's that good. And you know, there's just nothing attractive about disunity. There's nothing, nothing that draws you about disunity. And I believe God still wants a church full of power. Do you believe that? I believe God still wants to visit us with His presence. I believe that God is still wanting to move in the nation of Aotearoa with revival fire and cause us to be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Come on. We just built this building and literally 30,000 cars a week drive past it and it is a beautiful beacon of light in what the city call a gateway property. The building glows all night long with a beautiful luminescent hue. I love that. That was a great turn of phrase. 
But the truth is, my friends, that it's not just a building that's going to draw people. It's the light. It's the light of our conversation. It's the light of our love. It's the light of our unity that brings a lost world home to a Savior. So Jesus prays, and He's like, man, if we could just get this team to be one. I mean, Father, let's start with the 12, but let's not start with them. Let's go to every generation. Would they all stop posturing, jockeying, thinking about their own independent whims and fancies? If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, Jesus is praying for you that you will no longer live a self-centered life, but that you'll reach a point of unity. It's crucial that we understand that Jesus is praying for His church. He is still praying for His church. He says, I live to intercede for my church. And His prayer is constant. Would they all just get along? Would we have some unity around here? Now, unity is just about two things. A common purpose and shared participation. Purpose, participation. Purpose, participation. That's unity. And God is saying, when you get that kind of unity, well, there you can do anything. This whole series is inspired by Genesis 11, where God came down and looked at these people building the tower, and He said, if there's one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. They've got a shared purpose, and they're all participating. They can do anything. Jesus here says, may they all be brought to complete unity because they've got a shared purpose, build the church. Not build a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, but build a church that is a beacon of light to a lost and broken world. And then he said, they said, here's our participation. Let's make some bricks. And the Bible says that we are building living stones that are being shaped together into a dwelling place in which God will inhabit by His glory. Every person that we lead to Jesus is a living stone. And the church really is not bricks and mortar or steel and, and, and surroundings or lights, but it is the people. And God is saying, if we could get this unity thing happening, then we could make a massive difference. Now, church, this whole journey of Arise began with a promise that one people speaking the same language could do something great for God. I really believe our church is positioned right now at just the beginning of our journey. We are just getting started on this journey that God has got us on. This is a seed for a future dream. That New Zealand would be a Christian nation. That's what I believe God wants to take place. That every child would hear the gospel. Every kid would have a full stomach when they arrive at school. That every marriage would have this, a chance to hold together. That every addict would discover God doesn't want to bind you to your abuse, but wants to liberate your dreams. Where every person would be whole and healed and every life will be saved. I believe New Zealand wants the gospel. God wants the gospel shining over our nation so that our nation can be blessed and whole and healed and strong. And if you believe God still can visit New Zealand with revival fire, I want every person to lift your voice and give God some praise. Come on. Come on. In unity, we declare that God has still got a purpose for His church that New Zealand is alive with a future that we can see New Zealand saved. If you believe it, lift your voice and give God some praise right now. Come on, come on, come on. 
Now listen, if we're going to take that dream and we're going to make it a reality, I actually believe, I'm going to make the most audacious statement I've potentially ever made. I believe we have everything we need. Everything we need. Six and a half, seven thousand people are going to hear this message today. If every single one would get a spirit of unity, if you would answer the prayer of Jesus and get a spirit of unity, if we would come together in one, then I believe we have everything we need to leave an indelible print in the nation of New Zealand. Never has Arise been the only church. We want to believe in everyone, but this is the one you're part of. And God wants you and I to be in unity with His purpose and His plan. Because the truth is that if one can put a thousand a flight and two can put 10,000 a flight, then I reckon 7,000, 10,000, 14,000 can witness to four and a half million. And if you believe it, I want you to lift your voice right now. I believe we need to declare this over New Zealand that Jesus loves people. He loves a lost and broken generation. He is still leading people home to the Father. If you believe it, give God some praise right now. Come on. Come on, He does. Oh, it's the middle of July, but it feels like in lower hut, this has just become an upper room. Like God is indeed still visiting people, visiting wells, unblocking a generation, leading lost people to the Father. Do you believe God's on the move? Do you believe New Zealand is right for revival? Do you believe Jesus is still the hope of the world? If you believe it, lift your voice and give Him praise right now. Come on. Come on. See, let me, let, me, let me illustrate this for you. Let me show you what it's like. If, if a person's body for this next few minutes could represent a vision. I, I need one strong man, one strong man to jump up here right now. Come on up. One strong man. Here we go. All right. We've got one strong man. Does anybody believe? How you doing, Jimmy? You good? You are a strong man. Does anybody believe that vision is carried on the shoulders of people? Right? God entrusts vision. Jesus entrusted his church to you and me. Then let's look at it. I'm, I'm going to show you this, all right? I'm going to fall backwards, Jimmy, and you're going to have to catch me. Now, there's lots of people watching you right now, <laughs> inside and outside the auditorium. So my advice is that this works, okay? We're both going to look bad. Probably me worse, but because they can just see the back of your head. But we should show them your face so that we're going down together. Okay. <laughs> Love you, man. Okay. All right. So I'm going to I'm going to fall back, and you're going to catch me. That's a declaration. And you're going to hold me. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Praise God for a full hitter here. All right, if Jimmy is carrying the vision, then Jimmy is an intercessor. There's no way Jimmy can carry this vision for long. Have you ever met somebody with a dream in their heart that has no chance of coming to fruition because they're just alone in that vision? They're interceding for the dream. Now, if we're, if we're saying, you know, we're part of a church, but it's their church and your church and John, your church, and a thank you for your church and this church, this church. If it's third person language, then all we've got is a dream. 
we got an intercessor, we got a dream, but it's got no legs. I mean, Jimmy's probably, I mean, man, his shoulder's huge, but he's probably feeling it. <laughs> Praise God, Jimmy, that this is after the fast, because I lost 12 kilograms. <laughs> You, you would be carrying 82 instead of 67.3, you know. <laughs> yes, I weighed myself this morning. Um, so this has got no future. This has got no power. All right, now put me up, put me up. Okay. Now, now if we get six or eight people, I, I need six or eight men just to jump up here right now. I'm not trying to be sexist, ladies. Just stay with it, stay with it. Okay, you need to get nice and two lines, nice and tight kind of thing. Okay, six or eight, just six or eight. We've got nine. Okay, great. This is like a spirit of willingness. Okay, okay, okay. Now, now I'm going to kind of jump out, and you have to catch me. You have to catch me. Okay. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. One, two, three. Okay. All right. Whoa. Okay. Okay. All right. Hey. Do not try this at home. Okay, all right. So now we've got enough people to hold the vision. You know what's interesting is I was preparing this illustration. Every Arise campus that I can think of started with about six or eight people. I remember sitting in a lounge room in Christchurch. I remember seven people moving to Wellington and staying in the house in Kilburnie. I remember being in Whangarei, meeting with Aaron and Pauline, Dean and Dale, uh, you know, with uh, the amazing worship leaders whose names have gone from my head, but you were in my notes. Uh, you know, Joe and Jess, Stephen Ma and Hamilton, uh, Rihanna, a couple other people meeting with them there. This is enough to hold a vision. But it's got no long term, right? If this is a children's program, then it's every hand every week. If this is a church service, then it's everybody all in to make it happen all the time. And listen, right now, what they're all hoping is that I'm going to stop talking <laughs> and allow them to put me back down, which is what we're going to do right now before you guys do drop me, because that would be really embarrassing for all of us. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, give them a big clap. That's amazing. Now, now I need, I need about 40 to 60 men. Come on out here, 40 to 60 men. Jump on out here right now, just and pack nice and tight. This will work easier for everyone if it's tight. We should almost rotate the center, but get nice and tight in here. Okay, so I'm gonna jump up, and you guys are gonna carry me, and nice and tight, nice and tight, no gaps, no gaps, all the way to the stage, fill the space, front to back, not a thin line, that will not work. It's not a thin blue line, it's, it's a dense line, okay? They're going to pick me up, and then they're going to move me about, okay? Move me about. Dear Jesus, let this work. Are you, are you ready? Okay. What? One, two. This is like, if this was church, I would be, worship leaders would love it. If this was church, worship leaders would be so happy. All right. All right. Okay. Fantastic. Okay. Because we now have literally about 40 to 60 men standing here. We're just moving. We're moving a burden from one person to the next person. And because we're moving it from one person to the next person, what would be impossible if there was only six or eight, they could hold me up here for literally an hour. And if we added more men to it and kept it more and more, 
then this would literally have no end in sight. Have you ever seen people at a concert and they're up there crowd surfing and they're just literally going across a whole lot of people? Well, I believe that we serve the God who's got a vision for His church. And a vision is a crowd of people. You can put me down on the stage now. A vision is a crowd of people. We've done so well, let's not stuff it up, okay? Quit while you're ahead. A vision, thank you guys. Give a high five. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. If vision is a crowd of people, then the more, if the team is getting bigger, if everything is packed in and the vision is a person carried on the shoulders, then the bigger the team, the more possible the vision is. What Jimmy would have struggled to do for 10 seconds, a hundred men could do for an hour. This is the way it works. If we want to build God's church and you're like, okay, we need a children. Is anybody grateful for the children's ministries of Arise Church? Come on, are you grateful for people who are going to look after your one-year-old, your three-year-old, your eight-year-old? You know, when they, 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 they have life groups, they call the kids, they send them cards on their birthday. If it's one leader, then it's just hours of cards. And every Sunday, I was a children's pastor. It's exhausting. But imagine if there's 60 leaders, 60 leaders, and then now you're on the rotation just once every few weeks. Well, now we've got capacity. We've got a dream. We've got a potential to impact more people. Okay, let's talk about it in a church service. If you walk into a church service and you've got one campus pastor, and I've been this person, standing at the front of a service and nobody else is clapping, but you're trying to clap those hands for a whole auditorium. I would go back to church, uh, back home from church in 2003 with what looked like stigmata. My hands would literally crack open because I'm just, I'm just in it to win it. No one else is going to clap. Jillian can't clap in time, so stop clapping. And then I'm just like clapping, clapping. One day this church will clap. They will clap. But right now, it's me against the world. It's me against the world. But I'm going to clap. Come on, clap your hands, all you people. Clap your hands. Come on, it's me against the world. But when we're all in it together, team, well, then it's got a life and it's got a sound and it's got a... It's got a resonance and it's got an impact because when we're all in it together, well, now the clap of praise can literally break a chain. Are you with me today? Thanks for listening to this message from Pastor John Cameron. If you would like to find out more about Arise Church, check out arisechurch.com or find us on YouTube.